Today's episode of This Week on Broadway is being brought to you by Raycon Earbuds. Covered wagons, open toed shoes. As we watch the Satan sunset in all its wondrous hues. Welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, July 26th, 2020. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia, Michael Portantier, and Jan Simpson. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His columns appear at Masterworks, Broadway, Broadway Select, and many of the places. Good morning, Peter. Hi. Good morning. Uh, do you have any food for thought? Uh, yeah, um, in fact, I do, because um, last week I mentioned the Susan Charlotte, uh, the indefatigable and charming Susan Charlotte um, put on two uh, one-act plays at uh, the coffee club. Well, she's going to do it again, but at a different venue, a real theater, and that is Theater 80 St. Mark's, which is where um, your good man Charlie Brown started out way back when. Wow. So, um, yeah, that's where she's going to be. And uh, Kathleen Chalfant, no less than Kathleen oh. Chalfant, uh, is going to be um, starring in the Tennessee Williams uh, play. Um, and um, it's really, <laughs> it's really quite wonderful how she has been able to keep on going and congratulating um, so many people in making these things happen. So uh, if you haven't seen I Can't Imagine Tomorrow, which is the name of the play, or even if you have, uh, Anthony Marcellus uh, is directing at 2 o'clock, August 17th, and um, at Theater 80 St. Mark's. For those who aren't that familiar with uh, St. Mark's, if you uh, go to 8th Street and keep walking uh, away <laughs> from the west side, you'll uh, suddenly be on St. Mark's Place. And if you keep going, you'll come to the theater. So 2 o'clock, I Can't Imagine Tomorrow, Anthony Marcellus directing a play by Tennessee Williams starring Kathleen Chalfont. Hmm. All right. So we will uh, keep that in our minds. And I'll throw a link to that in the show notes as well. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's the founder and editor of castalbumreviews.com. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York, in the New York Times and other major publications. You could see his photography work at filespotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Good morning, Michael. Uh, do we have any uh, forbidden thoughts? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, <laughs> sometimes they <laughs> they they arise, yes. but in this case, it was a a, a wonderful little uh, reunion tribute to Forbidden Broadway that David Engel and his husband partner uh, Larry Rabin did online, uh, and they hosted um, Gerard Alessandri, the creator and writer of the show, for decades. Uh, since its inception, and also two longtime cast members, Christine Petty and Suzanne Blakesley. Uh, and so it was really wonderful to see those people talk about the show and its and its history. And uh, because I had collaborated with Gerard on a book about 
the show called Forbidden Broadway Behind the Mylar Curtain. Uh, and so I learned a lot about it then and also from seeing it countless times over the years. But there are still more stories to tell because, uh, you know, as I said, the show ran for, well, it started in the early 80s. So uh, and and really was running somewhere, I'm sure, right until the pandemic hit. So uh, and hopefully we'll continue. Um, it was really wonderful to hear all those stories. And and also, um, David Engel, uh, I don't know if you know a lot about him, but he was a performer. He was one of the original plaids in Forever Plaid. But also, he's been very involved over the years in um, uh, video production of uh, one form or another. And he uh, had access to, apparently, uh, lots of archives of Forbidden Broadway. So they showed some really, really wonderful clips over the decades of the show in various different venues, various different editions, um, including a, an early appearance on Merv Griffin that I had never, ever seen those clips. And it was incredible to see Gerard, um, you know, right at the be beginning. He was in the cast at that point. And he, 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 of course, like all of us then, I suppose he looked so young and, and he did... In uh, just spot on imitations of uh, the two clips they showed were him doing Richard Burton in Camelot. Uh, I wonder what the King is drinking tonight. And <laughs> the other one was um, Topol actually in Fiddler on the Roof. And he, he sounded exactly like Topol. It was amazing. So I really appreciated that David Engel and Larry Raymond did that show. And I very much enjoyed watching it. So, uh, tangentially to our Forbidden Broadway uh, <laughs> friends, uh, I want to uh, mention that it's it's 100 days until the election here in the United States. Is that right? Uh, it is one, on 100, 100 days from today. There will be a uh, vote for the president of the United States and various mm -hmm. other offices here. Uh, and... Um, there's a coalition of uh, people coming together doing a Biden for Broadway. Um, and so uh, this is how my mind works is that uh, I was looking at Biden for uh, or actually it was it's actually Broadway for Biden. It's not. Uh, uh -huh. Let's hope that Biden is for Broadway if he becomes president when he <laughs> becomes president. But uh, Broadway for Biden uh, uh, is one letter off from Broadway forbidden. <laughs> and uh so i was very concerned because the uh broadway for biden.com uh they did not purchase the broadway forbidden.com so uh i was concerned for them that they need to take care of that also uh did forbidden broadway play Ellen Stardust for a while. I, yes. I, I, I can't remember if it did or not. And also this week we hear news that, uh, mm -hmm. that Ellen Stardust Diner is in jeopardy of uh, not reopening. I'm not sure if it's currently open or I don't think um, – I haven't been in that section of town in, in a while. But I don't um, believe so. I, I don't think they yeah, uh, I, I don't the space for, for outdoor dining. Or, yeah. or social distancing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, and yeah, yeah. So uh, they are six hundred thousand uh, dollars, according to some uh, New York Post article, six hundred thousand dollars behind in their rent, which is actually only uh, two months. Can you can you imagine? Seriously, seriously. Yeah, 
could you imagine? Incredible, right? <laughs> so uh, to to think about you know uh, think about Alan Stardust Diner and, and and the size of that thing in comparison, you know, like a tenth of the size of size of a Broadway house, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, you can imagine you know what the Broadway theater owners are losing right now. Um, in rent, all, it's just uh, yeah, we're all we're all right there. So uh, some uh, things to think about there. Also with us, we haven't introduced her yet. Is the return of Jan Simpson? Jan is the director of the Arts and Culture Journalism Program at the Craig Newmark Graduate School of Journalism at CUNY. Uh, CUNY is the City University of New York for folks that don't know what CUNY is. It, uh, she also writes for TDF Stages, American Theater, and has her own blog at Broadway and Me. She sits on the executive board of the Outer Critics Circle and is a member of the American Theater Critics Association. Jan's podcast, Stagecraft, can also be heard on the Broadway Radio Network as well. Good morning, Jan. Good morning. Jan, uh, again, I have to once again publicly apologize for not having you on last week when we talked about books because you don't have to apologize. <laughs> <laughs> but that I, you know, immediately I was like, oh, we have to get Jan back on and talk about your books. So I put a link in the uh, in the show notes last week, and I also reincluded it this week for uh, your list of books on Broadway and me for your summer theater reading. Uh, do you want to give us a quick uh, overview of that? And maybe we'll talk about some other books. Um, I've been, I've been doing this list um, for, I guess right now about 12 or 13 years. And so over, you know, that period of time um, and I do put links each year to the previous years. So um, there are now about 150 books wow. um, that um, I've uh, uh, read and, and, and recommended. And I'm not sure if you want me to talk um, about a couple of the books on this year's list or if you want me to talk about novels, um, because uh, about a third of the books on the you know, combined list are fiction, because I love to read uh, books set in the world of the theater. So mm. I could do either. Well, you know, I'm going to ask some a question about novels before we get started. Sure. And that is, do you find mm-hmm. most of the novelists who write about the theater know the territory? Do they know what they're talking about? Or are there times when you start saying, oh, God, that would never have, Oh, equity wouldn't allow that. Oh, my God. Yeah, that type of thing. There are some uh, 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 like that, but a lot of the people who have written novels have worked in the theater. Mm-hmm. So like Michael Blakemore has a terrific novel. Um, uh, the novelist Margaret Drabble uh, has one of my favorite novels. And she was married for for a time to an actor and so lived um, in the theater world. And so it's a combination. Some people, yes. Um, and then there are some clunkers where you go, oh, really? Yeah. But, you know, so it's, it's both. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, okay. uh, Jan, why don't we um, start off with kind of uh, a few little picks from your overall 2020 list. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm also, I didn't realize that, Howard Sherman's book was in here as well, so we have yeah. to mention Howard Sherman's book. But, Absolutely. Uh, but tell us a little bit about the 2020 list, and then we'll talk about theatrical novels. 
Okay. The, uh, then I'll, I'll do it quickly. Um, the 2020 list is longer than I usually do. I usually do. Uh, yeah, you had more well, time to read. Yeah. Exactly. So that's what I figured. So there, I think, 12 or 13 books um, on the list uh, this year. Um, my favorite, I think, of the books, and one I'm going to start off talking about, is a book called Ensemble, An Oral History of Chicago Theater. And it came out last year, written by a guy named Mark Larson. I don't know if um, uh, any of you guys know him. He's a longtime Chicago theater writer. Um, and he seems to have talked to everybody who has ever worked on a Chicago stage or in one of their <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, storefront theaters. And I mean, like everybody. I mean, there are names that would surprise uh, some of us. Jewy Louis-Dreyfus, um, Andre DeShiel, David Schwimmer. Um, but the basic um, idea of the book, he starts in 1940 with Viola Spolin mm-hmm. um, and Paul Sills, who mm-hmm. innovated theater games and um, improvisation. Um, I think uh, Viola Spolin did the first book, at least in this country, on improvisation techniques. And uh, Paul Sills, her son, went to the University of Chicago. And there he started doing workshops and he um, brought in classmates. And in that group were um, uh, Ed Asner, Barbara Harris, Fritz Weaver, and of course, most famously, Mike Nichols and Elaine May. Hmm. And he starts his book there with um, what was going on at the University of Chicago, and he comes all the way up to uh, the present. So he spends a lot of time talking about Second City, Steppenwolf, the Goodman Theater, how they started, how they um, evolved, but he also talks about some of the smaller theaters uh, in Chicago as well. It's a big book, almost 700 pages. But if you're interested in, um, uh, theater, particularly the development of uh, regional theater, off-Broadway theater, uh, new uh, contemporary uh, American playwriting, um, it's a fascinating book. Couldn't recommend it uh, more highly. Oh, that's great. Uh, yeah, it's a really, really good book. The second book um, I'm going to talk about is uh, Playwrights on Television. This is a new book that just came out this year, um, this spring, actually, by a, a professor named Hillary Miller. And I think she now teaches at Queens College here in New York. And she had such a good idea that the minute I saw her idea, I thought, why didn't I have this idea? <laughs> um, okay, she, when that happens. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, ah! Um, she realized that, you know, we're now in this golden age of television, peak TV, all of these shows that people talk about, um, the Americans, Mad Men, Russian Doll, just a whole bunch of shows. And uh, she realized that most of the people or a large number of the people writing these shows were playwrights. And so what she did is she um, sat down and had interviews with 18 of them. 
Um, uh, they include people like um, uh, Jocelyn Bio, Madeline George, David Henry Wong, Adam Rapp. And she begins each of her interviews by asking them what was were their television viewing habits like when they were kids, then how they got into playwriting, and of course, how they moved into TV writing. But where it gets really interesting is where she talks about the pluses and minuses of uh, writing for television as opposed to writing uh, for the stage right now. And the, the people she interviews are really frank, really honest. Uh, they talk, obviously, about money and having health insurance. But they also talk uh, about, at least surprising to me, about television's willingness to take on, to try new things and to take on subjects that they still feel it's more difficult to get uh, the theater to do. Hmm. And they love the fact that television does it quickly. There isn't the whole reading and workshop and hmm. development process. Uh, television needs product and they need it fast. And you sit down and you write it and you know, a couple of months later, you're seeing it. And what they also love uh, is that they're reaching a vast audience. And they don't just mean in terms of numbers, but they mean people who might not ordinarily go to the theater. So sure. they're thinking um, in terms of racial diversity. They're thinking in terms of young people who are into watching television and particularly these prestige uh, television shows. And they're thinking of people who love theater and would want to go to theater, but just don't have the money to see um, perhaps as many sh shows as they would like to. And they feel this is an opportunity for them to talk to all of these audiences. So um, it's a really, that it's a, a really interesting book about what's going on right now. And then the last one I'll just mention very quickly is the 24 hour plays uh, viral monologues. And um, a lot of you who are, are listening have probably been following uh, these monologues, which began at the beginning of uh, the quarantine period um, in this country. Um, uh, playwrights, really well-known playwrights and really well-known actors uh, put on uh, uh these uh, short plays, really short monologues. Um, Ten minutes, I think, is a long monologue for for the uh, viral monologues. Um, Howard Sherman uh, came up with this idea of doing them, and he's edited a, a small um, a group of them that make excellent, uh, you know, sort of audition monologues for um, uh, students and, and, and young actors who are uh, auditioning once we get going um, again. Um, but uh, there are 54 of them in this book. Uh, the viral monologues are still going on. You can hear them, uh, see them on Instagram. Uh, but he has 54 of them uh, in this collection. And not only are they great 
pieces written again by some of our finest uh, uh, playwrights. You name a contemporary playwright working today, and uh, they've probably done one of these. But it's also like a journal of what it's like to live in this period of COVID-19 because all of the monologues are related to life um, during the pandemic. So uh, those are, those are three of uh, the books um, that are on this year's list. Great. So again, we have a link to that uh, list in the show notes for this week and last week as well. Um, and uh, check out all those things. And plus, as Jan mentioned, at the bottom of her list is all the, the other uh, number of years lists as well. So if you are, in fact, uh, book inclined, and we all certainly seem to have the time to uh, do mm. some reading these days, uh, check it out there. So, Jan, we also uh, were thinking about talking about novels which are set in a, in the theatrical world, can you explain what we mean by that so we can get everybody on the same page? Uh, yeah, just um, novels that, uh, again, are living in the theater uh, world. And I... Um, they fall into roughly three categories. There are literary novels that are written by, by some of uh, our, you know, most noteworthy writers, um, Mark Helprin, Francine Prose, Barry Unsworth, Tracy Chevalier, um, Margaret Drabble, um, really novels that would just hold their own in a, any literary uh, setting written by people who have won National Book Awards, Pulitzer Prizes, Booker Prize Awards, um, those novels. Then there are the more, uh, then there's the more commercial fiction. Um, books that are written just to engage, make terrific um, beach reads. There are also some of them that are graphic n- novels that are set um, uh, in the theater world. And then there are a whole bunch of mysteries. People love to set uh, a mystery. Somebody's been killed backstage um, and Hmm. uh, a detective comes in and uh, solves the the murder. Um, I think uh, I'm just going to do two of my favorites uh, of all of the 50 or so novels I've read. And the first, which was very hard to find for a while, it was like um, my Moby Dick. I knew about (laughs) it. I knew about it, but I couldn't find it. And finally they brought it back into print. And this is a novel uh, called The Garrick Year um, by Margaret Drabble. And uh, Margaret Drabble, the novelist, started out her career as a member of the Royal Shakespeare Company. And she was married for 15 years to an actor. And so borrowing from that experience, this novel uh, is set at a uh, summer repertory theater uh, uh, in England, um, not near London. Uh, This uh, young actor, uh, gets a role, not a role, but gets 
uh, hired for the summer, and he and his young wife and two small children uh, go to the um, uh, festival. It's kind of a highbrow soap opera. You know, obviously there are people jockeying for point uh, parts. There's a lot of um, sleeping around, but you really get the sense of what being in a repertory theater in England in the 60s would would have been like. Um, The book came out in 1964. Um, So I really recommend that. And then the um, Hogarth Press, which is a British press, um, a few years ago, they started this series. Um, They called it Hogarth Shakespeare. And they commissioned some of the leading uh, writers uh, in the world to take a Shakespeare play and write a modern-day version of it. Hmm. Um, You just don't mean updating language. You mean... No, uh no. A complete reinterpretation. Uh Uh-huh. They've had uh, uh, Howard Jacobson, who was a Hmm. Booker Prize winner, Ann Tyler, um, Edward St. Aubin, um, uh, Gillian Flynn, uh, people may know from, you know, uh, her, her novels. Um, uh, my favorite, and it's the first one I read, is Hagseed by Margaret Atwood. And people know Margaret Atwood from The Handmaiden's Tale, um, the great Nobel Prize winning Canadian writer. And she chose to do a retelling of The Tempest. And what she did is, again, a lot of novels uh, tend to be set in uh, theater companies because, you know, then you have a controlled group of characters. And hers starts off with this guy who's high-flying director, uh, artistic director of this company. And then, as he sees it, he's betrayed by his number two, and he's exiled from uh-huh. uh, from the company. And he determines that he is going to get revenge. And the way he gets revenge is by going, many years later, he takes a job under a different name at a prison. And this prison uh, is going to, he comes in, to work with the prisoners to uh, present a play. And the play that they decide to present is The Tempest. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to say anything more about the plot Mm -hmm. um, because it's full of surprises. It's a delight. It is part a satire of the theater world and um, (laughs) as you might expect the people in the prison start getting into the play and getting into the parts, not only of the characters in the Tempest, but of being theater people. Um, It's also a really brilliant analysis of the Tempest. I mean, Margaret Atwood is a great writer and she really um, (laughs) digs into the themes of the play and what Shakespeare was trying to get apart uh, across. And then finally, it is a true celebration of, of, of the power of theater 
and how um, it can change lives. So it's, a, again, it's called Hag Seed by Margaret Atwood. Just a delightful read from start to finish. Oh, that's great. So I found Hag Seed on uh, Amazon. And uh, this one is actually $12.99, which is much better than the thousands of dollars that we were quoting last week for some of the other, some of the other things, some of the other things. Uh, and I have a list um, uh, uh, to all the other books in the show notes as well. When Jan, when you mentioned us uh, uh, that it was a sort hag seed, uh, mm-hmm. sort of a satire of the theater world, I was thinking to myself, um, sort of like waiting for Guffman. Uh, it, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Very much. Uh, uh, in that in in that vein of of of, of theater satire, we have all known a Corky St. Clair, mm-hmm. and and so that's why uh, Waiting for Guffman really uh, hit home with so many theater fans, and uh, some people asked you know, uh, asked me because they knew of my affinity for uh, plays and musicals and things like that. If uh, I was insulted by Waiting for Guffman, and I said no 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 no, I thought it was hysterical, and it's great to hold up that mirror. And it made me think to myself, why hasn't Guffman ever been adapted for stage, or has it? And I just missed it. Hmm. Does Peter, Michael, Jan, do you know if it's been adapted? No. Um, I will say that there's a play that um, is kind of similar, um, which is called Inspecting Carol, about putting on um, a Christmas carol. <laughs> and um, hmm. and um, they're going to try to get a grant. And so the inspector is coming to. And so the inspector general play is uh, part of this as well. Terrific, terrific show. And um, it, it, I've seen it uh, twice in New Jersey. And that's about it. I know it gets done every now and then, but still, um, I wish it would get done more. I, I don't, yeah, I don't believe there is a stage, stage adaptation yet, but as I may have mentioned, I own the original cast recording of Red, White, and Blame, <laughs> which was issued, really? was issued as, I guess, a promo for the movie. Every time I tell someone that I have this, they're like, what? <laughs> <laughs> and it's, I, I mean, it's not much because there are many songs in it, but it is full versions of all of the songs that you hear in the movie, including that ridiculous overture where somebody's like playing the trumpet and the drums mm-hmm. at the same time. <laughs> Wouldn't that make for a great sort of producer's style musical waiting for Guffman? Well, well, we were saying, uh, I, we had discussed it once before, at least in passing, and I, I guess you would have to do it. Uh, you could just try to do Red, White, and Blaine and mm-hmm. expand it, but I don't know if the joke would work for a, a full evening. So I guess you would have to do the you know, the whole framing device mm-hmm. also. Maybe act one could be ah. set up and then act two could be the show within the show and then mm-hmm. just bring back the, you know, the, the larger story at the end. That would probably be the way mm-hmm. to do it, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, would it have to be written by Mark Shaman uh. and Scott Women? <laughs> <laughs> well, somebody has to expand the score and, <laughs> and they're probably as good a choice as anyone. Oh, Michael, you have to... Uh... You have to uh, uh, MP3 that and send it to me. So. I will. I will. Yeah, and don't expect too much because it's not. You know, it, the the content is not a tremendous amount, but it is full versions of all those songs with, uh, you know, with uh, in good sound, and that overture is is 
just ridiculous. <laughs> so the New York Times has a uh, Chicago theater company that did Red, White, and Blaine uh, theater company IO. Uh, and it was oh, really? An, uh, it was an article from 2014, but it seems like the um, – I don't know when they actually did it. I don't know if it was 2014 or earlier, but I'll throw a link to that in the show notes as well because anything Guffman is is, <laughs> is worth reading about. So <laughs> that is great. So uh, – Let's move forward into uh, some trivia of the day. So, Peter, why don't you give us an answer for last week? Well, I'm going to give an answer, but to be perfectly frank, um, one of the reasons I asked this question is because I want to know the answer myself. I do have an answer. I'm just not 100% sure it's the right one, though I will have to say that Michael Potentier was the first to get it, (laughs) um, followed by Tony Janicki, moving up a notch to second place from his previous also-ran finish. Uh, Brigadude Igor Yim and Fred Abramowitz got it as well, Uh, at least got what I was looking for, and that doesn't mean I'm right. But anyway, to me, the first um, lyric to use rock and roll was in Wonderful Town, the 1953 musical, which is kind of interesting because rock and roll as we knew it hadn't really uh, got started yet. Ruth sings in the song Swing, rock and roll to the beat, beat, beat of Speedy Valenti and his crazy cats. Now, I won't be surprised if um, somebody says, like, no, Fat Swaller and Early to Bed in the 40s wrote uh, the expression rock and roll, because Mm -hmm. I really don't know when the expression started, but I was hoping Mm -hmm. somebody could tell me. Uh, But as far as I know, Wonderful Town was indeed the first one uh, to do it. So this week's question, what musical had a cast that had appeared in 88 different shows in which they gave a total of 37,095 performances. Okay. If you know the answer to that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. Two things on the other question. Uh, Not only is on the town, uh, a wonderful town set, uh, writ- not only was it written in 1953, but I believe the action is still set in the, set 30s. In the 30s. Yeah, right. mm-hmm. And I asked Peter, I-, I wonder if rock and roll maybe was a-, a term that was used among musicians before it became popularized in, uh, you know, in reference to the rock and roll that we know. Maybe it was used for jazz and swing because... Sure. Uh, you know, and maybe Comden and Green knew it because uh, I don't think they would be the type to make a, put in an anachronism like that. No, I well, I agree, and it wouldn't even <laughs> it wouldn't be an anachronism in the sense that um, <laughs> rock and roll as we knew it didn't really start till uh, the mid fifties. So, so it, it, they were in fifty three writing it. So, right. um, yeah, right. you can't have a future anachronism. Um, so, so yeah, I, I have a feeling that indeed um, it does predate. Uh, what I'm saying, but nevertheless, I thought I'd ask the question in hopes of finding out. It looks like Rob Johnson and Tony Janicki are, are uh, oh, yeah. responding, are responding here. Well, to some oh, yeah. of the questions, so the, Tony says that the uh, Wikipedia says the phrase originated in 1954, uh, and Rob Johnson has a list, and uh, and he says, at first, it just meant sex. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Oh, oh. Well, it's interesting because I 
when oh. we started to record today, I just said oh, we were ready to rock and roll. <laughs> Sorry about that. My HR department is going to. Uh, All right, our listeners under eighteen, leave the room. <laughs> yeah, but then maybe it came from Compton and Green. Yeah, who knows? Because that was fifty-three. Yeah. No, yeah. no, no, <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> Whatever you are doing, whether you're working from home, zooming with friends, or getting some exercise. You need a great pair of wireless earbuds. Before you go dropping hundreds of dollars on a pair, you need to check out the wireless earbuds from Raycon. Raycon earbuds start at about half the price of any other premium wireless earbuds on the market, and they sound just as amazing as the other top audio brands you know. Their newest model, the Everyday E25 earbuds, are the best ones yet, with six hours of playtime, seamless Bluetooth pairing, much more bass, and more. Raycon's wireless earbuds are so comfortable, the perfect for conference calls or binging podcasts. I have earbuds in all day long as I'm listening to podcasts or to music or on a call. Wireless earbuds have changed my life, and I'm not just being dramatic, they really have. I've been using my Raycons for about a month now, and the number one thing I like best is the battery life. Before Raycon, I was constantly concerned about my earbuds' battery. Not anymore. One other thing... Raycon earbuds come with multiple gel tips because we all have different sized ears. Unlike some of your other wireless options, Raycon earbuds are both stylish and discreet with no dangling wires or stems to distract anyone during video calls. Now's the time to get the latest and greatest from Raycon. Get 15% off your order at buyraycon.com slash broadwayradio. That's buyraycon.com slash broadwayradio for 15% off Raycon's wireless earbuds. Buyraycon.com slash broadwayradio. And when you go to make your purchase, use Broadway15 for 15% off. We'd like to thank Raycon for supporting Broadway Radio. Okay, so uh, let's... um Oh, you know what? Let's uh, talk quickly. Michael, you saw the um, uh, the Mets uh, production of Porgy, Bess, Porgy and Bess was on uh, PBS uh, last, uh, in the last couple of days. So yes. uh, you and Peter had seen it up close and personal and live, and now you have seen it on PBS. Uh, tell us um, what the second viewing brought. Well, actually, in a sense, the, uh, you know, the, the, the video, the TV viewing was up closer because that, <laughs> that that's one of, one of the great virtues of these uh, telecasts or, or films or videos, whatever you want to call them. I, I really have to find out what the best word for them is. Uh, I had seen it twice live in the house once sometime last fall. And then uh, it, it was the last performance I saw at the Met before the pandemic. And I, Really, it's very difficult to say this, but I think it's it's possible that it may turn out to be the last performance ever that I will have seen there because the Met was has been in considerable financial trouble for quite a few years now, even before uh, all of this. And then they were rocked by the uh, scandal involving James Levine, their long-time music director with accusations of sexual misconduct. And then 
on top of that came the pandemic, which of course has been devastating for everyone. So between the health of the company and of course my own longevity and also the fact that we don't know when any kind of live performance in large venues will return, I I just you know, I, I don't want to think about it too much, but I I just really treasure the memory of seeing it. And I it's one of my favorite works of all time. I think it's one of the great creations of the human mind and spirit, Porky and Bess, um, based on the original novel by Dubois Hayward and then the, the opera itself written by George Gershwin and Dubois Hayward with with additional lyrics by Ira Gershwin. Um, so I, I, I do cherish it. And uh, the, the production, I would say the current production is not perfect. Uh, it uh, is directed by James Robinson with choreography by Camille Brown. Uh, and then some other theater names, names we know from the theater that involved set design by Michael Yergin and costumes by Catherine Zuber. Um, uh, the set for the, this production is um, a more suggestive, I guess, more uh, skeletal, less detailed, uh, certainly not as photorealistic as the 1985 production at the Met, which was the first time that the Met ever did the opera. They were going to premiere it uh, in 1935 or around 1935. Um, there had been plans for that, but then actually... Uh, the I think their general director uh, at the time died, and then uh, plans were scuttled in the wake of that. So it, uh, it famously wound up premiering on Broadway, and then the rest is history. But the current production overall, I would say, is is definitely um, very well done and very well worth seeing. Please catch this video if you haven't seen it already. Eric Owens is Porgy. Angel Blue is Bess. Denise Graves as Mariah. I'm just singling out a few people here. This incredible young artist, Donovan Singletary as Jake. And uh, just to hear that magnificent chorus and the incredible orchestra playing that score is, is just transporting. It just transports you to another plane of... <laughs> of existence really really beautiful and uh watching it again uh just quickly reminded me that i i do hope although i think it's unlikely i hope someday somehow that someone gets the money together to restore the 1959 hollywood film version because as flawed and problematic as that is it's a historic document if only in the sense of the uh, performances uh you know, the, some of the greatest artists of their day, Poor, uh, Sidney Poitier, Dorothy Dandridge, Brock Peters, Ruth Attaway, uh, Sammy Davis Jr., Pearl Bailey. I could go on and on. Um, Diane so, Carroll. Diane Carroll. Thank you. See, that's how many people are in it. I left out Diane <laughs> Carroll. <laughs> she was really, that was her, um, that was one of her first things. Uh, so that, uh, is currently available, as far as I know, only, only in a very uh, poor quality edited uh, transfer on on DVD. If you can even find that, uh, I found, I got it thanks to Peter Felicia, but uh, it's not easy to find, and it's far from complete and far from fully satisfying because the quality is so poor. 
Um, there are no close-ups. Well, there, there's one, but I mean, it's amazing how it, it, it looks like uh, there's a camera at the back of the theater and that's it. Yeah, that's one of the big flaws. And I can't understand it, Peter, because I can't either. discussed it was directed by Otto Preminger, right. who five years earlier had directed Carmen Jones mm-hmm. uh, right at the beginning of widescreen movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So, and, uh, but that one is fine as far as the yeah, edits, I agree. edits and the cuts and the camera work. So I, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, Porgy and Bess was a tr- tremendously troubled production. The film, oh, yeah. uh, all of the sets burned right before they were going to start and they had to, um, reconstruct them and and some people feel that it may have been arson because many people were against the project uh for several different reasons but who knows uh anyway um regardless of all of that it's just it's it's history it's film history and it should be restored and widely disseminated All right. So uh, it seems like it's uh, still playing in different areas. I have a link to that in the show notes for the great performances at the Met. Uh, So you might be able to still catch it in your area. So if you're interested in that, go to the show notes and click on that link. So today we thought about uh, what our topic should be, and uh, a handful of uh, listeners have emailed in and uh, said, you know, you guys are so musical heavy that uh, we that plays are getting the short shrift. Uh, so uh, I tend to probably agree with that, you know, just because, uh, uh, you know, so much of Broadway is focused on musicals, but we do mm-hmm. have great, great plays that have uh, have played Broadway. So we thought today's topic would be plays we love. And uh, Peter, why don't you get us started on some plays that you love? Well, you know, we could talk about the famous ones, The Glass Menagerie, Harvey, um, <laughs> Our Town, Three Sisters, um, Streetcar, all those things. I am going to mention plays that are not as well known that I think are really terrific. And under those circumstances, I urge artistic directors to take a look at them to see if um, they find them worthy of revival or just armchair uh, readers uh, want to read plays, look these up because I think they're really quite good. And I'm going to start with Precious Sons. Precious Sons was a play from the 80s, which I went to a, a, a final dress and I was convinced it was going to win the Pulitzer Prize. Nothing like that remotely happened. Uh, I'm sorry to say that the reviews were not good at all. I'm still at a loss to know why. But um, there was Ed Harris and Judith Ivey in George Firth's play. Yes, the man who wrote the book to company wrote this play, and I understand it was somewhat autobiographical. They are the parents of a child, played by um, Anthony Rapp, by the way, of course, who'd later show up in Rent, and I'll never forget doing a panel discussion on Rent when I mentioned it. Uh, The way he blinked and surprised that anybody had even heard of Precious (laughs) Sons was astonishing. But anyway... um, this is a story of a young boy who wants to be an actor and his father is dead set against it. Okay. You're saying now you understand why it closed quickly and why it didn't get a Pulitzer prize. Wait, 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 wait. Here's what's interesting. It takes place, I believe during the depression, but if not tough times, tough times, the father's out of work, but the kid gets a job appearing in a play and now he's supporting the family. Hmm. I find that of great interest. And my favorite line, one of my favorite lines of all times is when he's talking, I don't remember who he was talking to, but the kid is talking to somebody and he says, my favorite days of the week are Wednesday and Saturday because <laughs> we get to do it twice. 
And so, I mean, yeah, well, you can you can understand why I'm crazy for this play. So, um, it, it, there are problems in the family. Needless to say, at one point, um, Judith Ivy actually tips over this big credenza full of um, um, glasses and plates and what have you. So, but I remember it fondly, and I, I wish it would resurface again. I uh, and so. The challenge is out there to you, artistic directors, uh, and to armchair readers, as I say, to see if you think it's uh, worthy as I do. I'm sure it's been published in some form, and if so, get a copy. It is available for production at Concord Theatricals. Ah, so, I see. Uh, yeah. The but sooner I ha- the better. But I have, uh, I have a link from Frank Rich's 1986 review from the New York Times, mm. The yeah, Butcher sure of Broadway. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Jan, how about uh, a favorite play of yours? Um, hmm, this was so hard because it's like, yeah. Um, but uh, I'm going to start off, I guess, with Joe Turner's "Come and Gone." Uh, uh-huh. Um, it's my favorite of the August Wilson plays. Um, everyone knows about August Wilson's Pittsburgh cycle, his 10 plays about the African-American experience in the 20th century. Um, uh, he completed the last play, uh, Radio Golf, uh, shortly before his death. Um, and the most famous plays, I, I, I suppose, from the cycle are Fences and the Piano Lesson because they both won the Pulitzer Prize. But um, the one for me that uh, just knocks me out is Joe Turner's Come and Gone. Um, this is the plays weren't written chronologically. He he didn't start off with the first uh, decade of the 20th century. I believe the first play he wrote was Jitney, which is another one of his mm-hmm. plays that I love. Um, I think Joe Turner uh, was the third or fourth of uh, the plays that was written, but it's set in um, the uh, 1910s. Uh, and it's dealing with the first real generation uh, after uh, uh, post-slavery. These weren't people, for the most part, who were born during slavery, but they're the children of uh, people who were um, uh, slaves and enslaved people who were emancipated. And it's really about identity and um the quest for uh black people uh in this country to determine who they are and and one of the things i love about wilson's plays i mean there are many things i love but one of them is that um not much happens in his plays i mean they're they're like vast character sketches <laughs> lots of different mm, people yeah, yeah. But the people are very specific. They're, they're, they, they come across as real people while at the same time representing lots of different things. And in Joe Turner, the, the phrase Joe Turner's come and gone uh, applies uh, 
refers to uh, this man, a real man named Joe Turner, who went around, um, he was the, I believe, brother of the governor of Mississippi, and he would go around and arrest black men for various violations, and I'm putting violations in air quotes, um, so that they could send them to the state work farm. And it was another way to enslave uh, these men. And the main character, uh, Harold Loomis in Joe Turner, has completed a sentence of seven years on one of these work farms and is now in a sort of a way um, like Sweeney Todd. He is now looking for his wife, um, the wife that he lost when he was uh, sent away um, uh, to prison. And he and the various people in this house representing different ways in which uh, black people uh, at that time, the beginning of the 20th century, were adjusting. And of course, as in all August Wilson plays, the language is just wonderful. So that's it's it's not as um uh, uh, perhaps revelatory and 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 unknown as um as peter's but it is um, my favorite <laughs> the august wilson plays <laughs> okay uh michael what's a play that you uh really adore well since jan started with august wilson i'll continue because he uh i had two of his on my list well actually more than two but <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah but the, my two favorites, I, I think I'd have to say, are Fences and Jitney, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't know how many people would pick that among their very favorites, but I love that play. I think there's something mm-hmm. so wonderful about the characters and the situation, and it's just really beautiful. Um, but I love all of his plays. It, uh, the only one I didn't love, for some strange reason, uh, and as Jan mentioned, it did win a Pulitzer. It was the piano lesson. Um, so I don't know if maybe I just was not feeling well that night. Or <laughs> I, I, I'd, I'd, I'd like to see it again. And, and there's fact, a nice I, TV movie. Um, and uh, it, it's, it's a very effective TV movie. And uh, Charles Dutton is in it. Charles Dutton gave one of the greatest performances I've ever seen in that mm-hmm. play. Yeah. Well, thank you for t- uh, it's a TV movie rather yeah. than, than a, uh, a, a filming of the Broadway production yeah it's a genuine um movie um and um (laughs) i will tell you this if you go into any family dollar store you will find it for two dollars without a a case but anyway it's everywhere there i mean you can't avoid it um and uh but it really is quite wonderful and um i i i the one thing i i do feel the mystical realism of it um is a problem but otherwise i think it really is quite wonderful and i still remember my girlfriend lynn at the end of the first act saying, wow, you know, there's one person saying his point of view and you say, yeah, 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 he's right. And then uh, his sister gives her point of view and you say, yeah, 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 she's right. I mean, it's really so effective in that way. So there's a million reasons why this is a, a, a really terrific one. Um, so maybe you weren't feeling well that night um, or maybe the mystical realism um, was a problem for you too. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I'd love to see it again. And in fact, I think I just read something about plans afoot for a revival uh, has anyone read that no i don't that doesn't mm. ring a bell to me i just um, googled it and i couldn't immediately find anything but uh maybe somebody mentioned it in a gossip forum uh so keep your ears out for that we'll see what happens um, peter um 
uh, I have to ask the important question. Did did Linda leave it in her mission? By no means. Okay. <laughs> no means. Not at all. Not at all. Yes, indeed, I will agree that Linda is famous for walking out, but nevertheless, uh, she stayed in place and she wasn't going anywhere until the curtain calls. So, indeed. Oh, I'd like to add, um, uh, when we were, when we came up with the idea of favorite plays, I thought, I, I guess like Jan, I thought, oh, God, where do I start? Uh, but I, I thought I would start with uh, plays that I directed, because uh, ah. I did get to do several shows in Staten Island Community Theater years ago, and a lot of them were musicals, but we had a smaller theater, the Seaview Playwrights Theater, uh, which, you know, is still in existence or, you know, wasn't yeah, sure yeah. everything happened. Um, and just a jewel of a little space, uh, basically three-quarter thrust set up where we did lots of plays. And the first one I directed was a play that was quite popular at, at one point, and I would say now is... Uh, has fallen into obscurity to a large extent, and that is Butterflies Are Free. Oh, oh. yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, by Leonard Gersh, which I look, I just looked it up, um, and I maybe I knew this and forgot, or maybe this is new information, but it says it's loosely based on the life of attorney Harold Krentz. Indeed, indeed. Leonard um, Gersh saw uh, him, uh, Harold on The Tonight Show. And he said, my God, this kid is so amazing uh, that he's been blind since birth and he has such a sense of humor about it. What a great idea for a play. So that's what happened. Michael, I hate to hijack this, but I'm going to tell you that that was the first professional review I ever wrote. Wow. Uh, and what had happened was I had just got a job at um, a, a newspaper called Boston After Dark, and the play was trying out in Dennis, Massachusetts, which is far away from Boston. And uh, they said, oh, give it to the new guy. It sounds terrible. What, a, a boy who's blind? <laughs> Are you give it to the new guy. Send the new guy. And I came back and I raved. And they said, oh, God, what did we hire? Oh, my God. I mean, this guy must be so stupid if he liked this play about a blind boy <laughs> who falls in love. And what was really interesting is that um, this was August, okay? And I have to say that while I loved the, the play and Keir Delay was phenomenal and this newcomer named Blythe Danner, wasn't she wonderful? <laughs> However, I did think that the woman playing Keir Delay's mother, Maureen O'Sullivan, uh, was terrible. And um, I, I said so. And Arthur Whitelaw, the producer of the play, actually called me up. He found my telephone number and he called me up and he said, your review is so wonderful. We're really raising money on it. And uh, for that matter, uh, we're taking your advice and we're, um, we're not going to keep Maureen O'Sullivan. Now, this was oh. August. The play opened on Broadway in October and ran over a thousand performances and um and boy was i smug at that newspaper with all those people <laughs> derided me in my taste boy that is quite an amazing story every I mean, word of it's true pre presumably you weren't the only person who objected oh indeed oh please please <laughs> but, but no but but still <laughs> no, that's amazing of course yeah, I, so, everybody I, else did the hard work you know <laughs> i i don't know the uh, butcher of boston is much right, much right, much right. better than the butcher of broadway i don't yeah, know right. <laughs> <laughs> i saw the show on broadway but it was late in the run so i regrettably saw 
uh, neither Keir Delay nor Blythe Danner nor Eileen Heckert, but I did see uh, David Huffman and Pamela Bellwood and Gloria Swanson. Oh, I saw Gloria Swanson do it too. She took it on tour. And uh, a few years later, uh, she came to the Colonial in Boston where I saw it. So yeah, yeah. Um, but I never saw Eileen Heckert do it until, of course, the movie. And it's really one of those ironic things that that year, both Blythe Danner and Eileen Heckert were up for the Tony and Blythe Danner won. And yet when the movie was done, Eileen Heckert won the Oscar. So, uh, so mm. that's, that's kind of interesting. That doesn't happen very often mm. where somebody who loses the Tony winds up winning the Oscar. It happens, but not that often. Hmm. Well, the movie version is fine. I think it's very, I well agree with, uh, Edward Albert and Goldie Hawn and, mm-hmm. Thank God, Miss Miss Heckert repeating mm-hmm. her performance, mm-hmm. um, and I guess that's one way to. It is quite faithful for the most part. Yes, yes, way. I agree. Yeah. Uh, they move the action from. Uh, I believe he's in in the place supposed to be living in Greenwich Village. Uh, uh, the Don Baker, the young blind man, but mm-hmm. in the movie they uh, change it to, uh, uh, I guess, a suburb of San Francisco. Uh, yeah, uh, that sounds. It's, in I San think- Francisco, his 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 mother is from a suburb of yeah. San Francisco, um, and another plus of another delightful little plus of Butterflies Are Free is that it has an original song by Stephen Schwartz. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's- true. I mean, it's it's so amazing because the um, the the young man wants to be a songwriter, right? And um, so anyway, Shirley Bernstein, uh, who indeed was um, Leonard's sister, uh, was an agent, and she took on uh, Stephen Schwartz, recognizing his talent very early, and saying, oh, "Look, this um, this uh, play is looking for a, a a song. Go write something." And he did, and he was amazed that it was accepted. And that was his real start because this is 1969. Godspell wouldn't happen until 71. And what happened was he was really making $25 a week for writing that song, you know, which was a lot of money in those days. <laughs> no, it wasn't. <laughs> so I, I want to throw something in here and uh, more of a question for the three of you. Um, I wanted to say that Equus had a really huge impact on me. And mm-hmm. and I'm wondering if it was because I was so young when I saw it and I was just overwhelmed. I think it was the first play on Broadway I saw. Uh-huh. Um, and then when I saw the revival uh, a couple of years back, a couple of years back, when was the Broadway revival of Equus? It was like 10 years mm-hmm. ago or so. Probably. Um, uh, I was... I I didn't like it as much, and I was wondering if it was that I was a different point in my life, or maybe it just wasn't all that good to start with. But I was it made a huge impression upon me when I first saw it. What are your thoughts on Equus? If I can leap in, I thought that production was quite poor in terms of the direction, the revival. S- yes, the Daniel Radcliffe. Yeah. Yes, the direction. Several several pieces of casting. The night I saw it, I'm terribly sorry, but Richard Griffiths was just walking through it, uh, and I, I'm not a fan of that director. Also. The staging, the actual staging was not as good. Uh, I imagine, um, uh, James, did you, when you saw it the first time, did you sit on stage by any chance? No, I didn't. Well, I did <laughs> the first time, and that was that, that made a huge difference. But I, uh-huh. I, I think the play itself is uh, still very solid, and in my opinion, 
probably the reason that you didn't have an equal reaction to the revival is that uh, it just wasn't very well done at all. Huh. So uh, maybe the underlying property is is good. When you, I think so. Oh, yeah. I, I, yeah, I, I saw so. the original as well. And yep. um, I, at the height of its power, I had to buy standing room, um, which never bothered me because, of course, <laughs> you have a better view of the stage than you will at the last row of the orchestra. And, of course, it's, it, it's not as expensive. And, you know, you can lean. So, um, But I'll, I'll never forget. I saw a Christmas Eve, ironically enough, um, after it had opened the first Christmas Eve. And um, really astonishingly effective. And, uh, yes, the revival couldn't hold a matchstick, let alone a candle to it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, in our agree. in I our agree. chat room, uh, Cheryl Hodges Selden mentioned that it was her, uh, Equus was her first Broadway show that Leonard Nimoy starred. Oh yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And also, the, what was significant about that first production was the fact that in those days, uh, people like Leonard Nimoy were taking over after the original left. Mm-hmm. So we had Anthony Hopkins, but mm-hmm. then Richard Burton, Burton came in. Yeah. Yeah. And that was a really significant thing because stars of that magnitude were not taking over roles. And since that time, it has happened far more often than it, it used to. So mm-hmm. um, that was a significant move on his part. Uh, maybe he needed the money, who knows? But whatever the case may be, to have somebody arguably, no, not even arguably, more famous than the guy who originated the role, uh, because Anthony Hopkins wasn't Anthony Hopkins yet, um, right. was really something. But it was such a terrific role. Oh, yeah. 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 But nevertheless, there were plenty yeah. of people who wouldn't deign to, um, yeah. to take right. over. Right. <laughs> uh, Michael Gilson in the chat room is asking uh, what we think of Copenhagen. Uh, the play. So, uh, is that did that make anybody's list? Uh, I, by ironically enough, I'll I'll cite something else, um, and that is when um, we went to Copenhagen. Um, Linda and I uh, were on the aisle, and in comes Jim Walton well, with a friend, <laughs> and um, so Linda was thrilled. I mean, she couldn't believe her good fortune because, indeed, Merrily We Roll Along is a big favorite of hers, and so she was crazy that. She was meeting Jim Walton for the first time. Oh, I can't believe it. So at intermission, we go out to um, get a drink at that little store next to the Atkinson. And um, she said, I hate this play. I said, well, then you're leaving. She said, I can't. I can't. I'm sitting next to Jim Walton. If I leave, he's going to think I'm a moron. Because, uh, you know, I mean, after all, this is an intellectual play. I don't want him to think I'm stupid. You know, I said, Linda, really, think about it. You can be home. You can be in bed. You can be watching Law and Order. And I finally convinced her. I finally convinced her to go home, and I came back, and Jim Walton had left, too. So. <laughs> oh, that is hysterical. great. Oh, true my goodness. Story. Great story. Yep. Great story. True story. Yeah, I'm, not, I'm not a fan of that play either. That one and The Coast of Utopia, I think, are two that stand out in my memory as recent ones that were tremendously acclaimed, and I just did not respond to them at all. Well, well this I, is – go ahead, Jan. Yeah, I, uh, Copenhagen – unfortunately didn't work for me um but uh coast of utopia i think wore me down i mean i started out (laughs) thinking yeah yeah, i started out (laughs) thinking i don't know that this is such a great play and by the end of it maybe because i'd survived it i thought wow this was something so i don't know it's coast longer than california (laughs) (laughs) that's great good for you um but we are supposed to be talking about plays we love so as a result i'm going to mention something by jean anouy now jean anouy Mm -hmm. uh, a french playwright Mm -hmm. um 
I'm telling you, in the 50s, every time you turn around, he was being produced. He had 10 Broadway productions <laughs> in the 50s. He had four in the 60s, one in the 70s. Do you see the law of diminishing returns? <laughs> but I'm going to mention one that I don't believe was done on Broadway, which I saw at Tufts University many, many moons ago. And still to this day, I remember Ellen Diamond. That's E-L-I-N. I know she was teaching at Rutgers for a while. I don't know if she's still there. But anyway, a terrific play about a family, uh, an upper crust family who was utterly disgusted that Ardell, um, their uh, sister, uh, is, has fallen in love. Why are they disgusted? Because um, Ardell is afflicted with the same thing that Quasimodo has. And they just think it's disgusting that she has found another person with this affliction. And they indeed are consorting. And uh, the idea of just these two people doing it is so repugnant to them that they just hate the idea of it. Well, the point is through the play, you see that these people are really the ones who are repugnant. They have terrible values. Uh, and the thing is, here are these two people who just want to be in love and have every right to, but the family is disapproving. I won't tell you what happens after that, but nevertheless, it really is astonishingly effective. And it, uh, I really wish there would be um, a um, Ananui revival because um, I, I really think he's such a, a, a sensational playwright. The Cavern, another play of his, which was done at CSC a long time ago, um, maybe in the 70s even, but I remember also seeing it at Tufts University uh, in the 60s and it was a magical, magical experience. So, uh, well, so the Toreadors, phenomenal play um, uh, about uh, a, a man with an ostensibly sick wife who's cheating on her, but there's more to it than that, too. So uh, all these plays are very worthwhile. And uh, again, artistic directors or armchair readers discover Jean Anouille, A-N-O-U-I-L-H. Yeah, I haven't heard that name since I was in college. I'll bet. Yeah. <laughs> well, and that was I... not recently. <laughs> <laughs> That's coming down to brass tax. Peter, we had a question from Steve Bell. He wants to know what the, what the name of the Quasimodo play was. Uh, Ardell, A-R-D-E-L-E. Okay, thank you. Michael, what were we going to say? Oh, I, I just wanted to say I first came to know Antigone in the Henri version. Mm. Ah. And, I, and I think that maybe it was and is still the most popular uh, uh, that I know of. Oh, that's uh, funny. Antigone was on my list of, um, you know, classic plays. That, mm. um, but it was the Sophocles Antigone, not the. Um, I think the Anouille is the one that the, there's the TV version that Genevieve Bougeot did. Terrific, mm. terrific, terrific um, production. So um, look for that on video. It's really quite wonderful. Yeah. Huh. Um, I would have to say, um, again, I'm going to go um, more lowbrow to Peter's highbrow. Um, <laughs> the play that continues to move me, and even in bad productions, and I recently saw a production that was not good, is <laughs> Love Letters. Uh-huh. A.R. Gurney's Love Letters. And, and I don't know why this play uh, so moves me. Um, I've seen it so many times because when it first uh, was produced, <clears throat> for a while they had a different cast every mm-hmm. Monday night. Sure. 
And I was going. And then I realized I don't have that much money to go to the theater and I'm <laughs> spending it all seeing yeah, yeah. the same play. Yeah. So I, I saw it, I don't know, like four or five times. And then I stopped. <laughs> and then on Broadway, uh, a few years ago when it was revived, I was all prepared to see it again and again, but the run was yeah. um, ab- aborted. And th- just recently, there was an Actors Fund uh, Zoom production with uh, Sally Field and Brian Cranston. And I love both of those actors. I think they are so talented. But it really didn't work um, uh, in a Zoom production. And you would think that it would because it is, as people know, an epistolary uh, play um, and we followed the lives of these two upper class wasp um, as they go through their entire lives. I think it starts when um, they are six and it goes through the end of the life of one of them. And it's just a series of letters that they write um, to one another. Uh, again, this um, Sally Field, Brian Cranston production didn't work. I was watching it on my computer on Zoom, and I still cried at mm-hmm. the end. So I, I, I don't know what it is about this A.R. Gurney play, but, um, mm-hmm. but I really love it. <laughs> Peter, what else is on your list? Well, I'm going to mention something that I saw that the production was so different that uh, it really opened my eyes to a a different possibility. Um, I was in France. I was in Paris and I understood the Valponi was being done in the Bois de Boulogne and I was walking through the park. I couldn't find it at all. And I did want to see a 5 p.m. matinee of uh, The Master Builder by Ibsen. And I'm telling you, it was just amazing. I, there I was in the middle of this <laughs> park, you know, it's like the Central Park. And it, it was just incredible that I couldn't find it and I couldn't find a subway. And it was getting close to five o'clock. Uh, finally, I saw a subway. I just went in. A train was coming in. I threw myself on it, hoping I would get to the uh, right uh, taking the right subway as it turned out i was and um as a result i got off i got there just before showtime which was even great because they sold all tickets at half price just before showtime and i got a front row seat and this was great too because the lighting was so intense and i'm telling you i had jet lag and i had been walking around this park and yet i was mesmerized now if you know the master builder you know mm. this is about a young girl who um has this hero of this retired uh, architect mm-hmm. and um she just thinks he's the sun and the moon and he's very smitten with her. And as a result, um, he does what she wants to do. And the thing is, he's got this very dowdy wife. Um, that's the way it's usually done. Not in this production, even though the only words I know in French are we and Mared, the fact is I understood exactly what was going every step of the way. All right. Yes, I had seen the play, but the point is what was so brilliant about this production. And I truly believe that um, what had happened was the director had seen Neil Labute's um, play. Oh, the title is um, the, the one about the girl who's manipulating the guy. Um, does anybody remember what I'm talking about? Yeah, uh, I know that play, but I can't remember the name of it right it was at the promenade um Mm -hmm. um, anyway the thing is that that's what goes on here it wasn't a girl who was just uh smitten with the um, master builder it was a girl who wanted to see if she could manipulate him into doing one last thing and the other interesting fact was that yes 
the wife was in her 50s, maybe even 60s, but she was an extraordinarily beautiful woman, uh, even at that age. And the point is that he was the, the, the master builder was just tired of her because they'd been married for so long. He lost the ability to see how wonderful she was. And she really was level headed while he was really smitten with the girl. And he didn't realize he was too stupid to realize that she was manipulating him. So again, a completely different take on this. And um, I would love to see this production uh, come to the United States uh, and overwhelm people with its very different take on the matter. Maybe make me like the master builder. (laughs) (laughs) Was it the shape of things? Yes. Thank you. Thank Mm -hmm. you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Good for you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. So, uh, Michael, what about anything left on your list? Well, uh, I wanted to mention the other four that I directed at Seaview Playwrights Theater on Staten Island. Uh, Two of them were two Tennessee Williams, The Glass Menagerie and A Streetcar Named Desire. And I certainly don't need to say anything further about the greatness of those two. Um, And I also was so happy that I got to do Arthur Miller's A View from the Bridge which I think I think that play it seems like it's only gotten more popular as as the, oh, absolutely. Uh, the decades yeah. have gone on, yeah. and uh, I'm glad about that because I think it's it's, it's extraordinary. Um, and speaking of extraordinary, I was privileged to direct Martin Sherman's Bent, which is uh, an incredibly powerful. Yeah, uh, I would say quite difficult to watch um, play about how the uh, Jews were not the only victims of the Nazis. They were, they hated lots of people and brutalized and killed indiscriminately. And uh, particular targets of them were gay people. Uh, It's, uh, it's, it's just a harrowing, but ultimately, ho- hopefully, um, cathartic and maybe even a little hopeful. Uh, there's a little bit of hope in the play because of the way that love mm-hmm. enters in it, the way that love can exist even under the most horrendous circumstances imaginable. So I, uh, yeah, I was very, very, very pleased that I got to do those plays. I love that play. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I wish play. the... Um, I, I wish the movie version were better. It's, I didn't. I, I didn't watch that. Yeah, I don't think it's awful, but it's kind of odd, oddly done. Uh, I think a more straightforward film of it would have been more powerful. Um, and I wonder when and if we'll see Bent in another form, either on stage mm. or on film or on television. Mm. Uh, uh, James, I know we're we're, we're going on um, long, but. I would like to just squeeze in one more play. Please, yeah. Um, and uh, I'm squeezing it in for two reasons. One, because I so love this play, but also because we haven't talked about any plays by women. And um, this play, I'm not putting it on the list just because it's by a woman. It is Paula Vogel's How I Learned to Drive. Yeah. And I... it. When we talk about the great, the canon of great American plays, I think this play deserves to be there. Um, uh, as people probably know, it is a play, it's a memory play 
uh, a woman looking back at the um, way that uh, her uncle um, uh, uh, sexually abused her and yet was the one person in her family who encouraged her to go to college, who showed her love. Um, it yeah. is, it is, uh, I was so looking forward to seeing yeah. the revival that was scheduled with the original cast of Mary Louise Parker and David Morse. Mm. But um, the 2012 uh, uh, revival at Second Stage with um, Elizabeth Reeser and uh, Norbert Leo Butts was just uh, as moving. The whole idea of empathy, we talk a lot about empathy in the theater and Empathy doesn't just mean, it doesn't mean, oh, okay, I agree with you. Right. It means I, I see mm-hmm. where you're coming from. Mm-hmm. I understand where you're coming mm-hmm. from. And this is, to me, the, the most supremely empathetic play where you look at this pedophile, this man who began abusing this girl when she was 10 or 11 years old, and you understand him you have sympathy for him and yet you still can hold that what he did was reprehensible i i see it exactly the same way this is not a bad man this is a man who has a bad component in him Mm. uh and um i think it's very very strong um how paula vogel was able to show that that um he is sincere um, he's not just on the make. He really mm-hmm. does love her in his own way. It's just that it's in an appropriate way. And, uh, and that's the shame of it. But nevertheless, um, <laughs> as you say, he's the one who really helps her more than so many members of her family. So it, that's complication is what really makes the play outstanding. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it's ironic you mentioned, uh, seriously, the next play I was going to mention was by a woman. Oh. And this is one that isn't um, very well known. It's a one-act play, but it's very, very funny. And it's called Graceland. And it's by Ellen Byron. That's her name. She's written a lot for TV. And she's written some mysteries that have gotten some um, novels that uh, have gotten some great attention. But Graceland, as you would expect, is about uh, where Elvis Presley lived. And it's about two women, an older woman and a younger woman, um, who are determined to be the first person in Graceland the day it's open to the public. And they've, they've set up their camp chairs right in front. You know, they're going to wait, you know, hours. They're going to spend the night there. And each of them is determined to be the first one in. So they're, they're enemies at the beginning. They're not at the end. I, uh, I'm, you know, I apologize. I didn't realize we had gone on so long. There were so many uh, on my list that, that I didn't get to. And one of the, one of the, them was another play by Paula Vogel and that's indecent. Yes. Oh, yes. Which was just a, a breathtaking, a, a beautiful play about the original production of God of Vengeance by Sholem Ash. That was uh, an experience I will never forget. And I remember I got to talk with Paula afterwards. She was standing in the back and I just kind of went <laughs> over and I, I said, I, I was I, I didn't. I said that was just beautiful <laughs> by the way i met paula vogel when she was betty corwin's assistant at mm. the um theater of film and tape at lincoln center and i oh. remember betty saying to me not in front of paula and that makes a big difference betty saying to me this girl can write i'm telling you she's she's terrific you're going to hear from her someday and uh, indeed we have 
I didn't she's know also that. a really, really nice person. Yes, yes I was indeed. at I yes, was indeed. at some um, theater event. There were a, a lot of well known and well connected people in the room, and me. Um, and, um, I was standing there with my little glass looking around and the only person to come over and talk to me was Paula Vogel. Um, Mm. and, and I was thinking, well, there are a lot of well-known people here, but this is like a really well-known person Mm -hmm. and she's Mm -hmm. taken the time to come over and, and, and talk to me. Um, she's a really nice woman. Oh, Jan, we've all been in that situation where we've been in the room and we're bringing up the rear. I know what you're talking about. <laughs> three, uh, three other plays that happened to be by women that were on my list were Night Mother by Marsha Norman. Oh, yeah. What a great uh, idea for a play. God of Carnage. Mm-hmm. Um, just talk about God of Vengeance, but then there's yeah. God of Carnage by uh-huh. Esmina Reza, mm-hmm. which was extraordinary. And... Um, Two by Lynn Nottage, Ruined, of course, and Intimate Apparel. Love which, Intimate Apparel. Absolutely. Which was just about to open in a, a musical adaptation, I believe. Right, yeah. I believe maybe actually being billed as an opera. Opera, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, by Ricky and Gordon right. uh, at Lincoln Center, and that one of the many, many victims of COVID. <laughs> so I, uh, they, I believe they've actually rescheduled it. With yeah. a, you know, with an actual mm-hmm. new date, mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. I would really. Look I think I think they said <clears throat> next fall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I believe yeah. So. Let's hope it's true. Yeah. We Who have a uh, lot of announcements in the last couple of weeks from places like Second Stage and Lincoln Center about sure. reaffirming their support for plays mm-hmm. that were canceled uh, due to the COVID virus. Um, so that's uh, it's really uh, wonderful to see that. Others are are trying it, uh, to get us back on track, and we've had a handful of as as Peter has has mentioned. Food for Thought is is one of the companies that is uh, currently doing stuff, and we have some uh, productions up in the Berkshires and uh, mm-hmm. a bunch of outdoor things that are happening. So we're we're starting to see the Secret Garden come back to life here. Okay, so that uh, is a number of our favorite. Uh, so, a number of our favorite plays. Uh, certainly, we haven't had a collectively exhaustive list here. I'm sure that <laughs> all of us have got a, a number of things as well sure. uh, that are uh, haven't made this list. And certainly, the, these are not in order. These are just some of the things which have inspired us. So before we wrap up for today, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, It'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us on Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to listen to us. iHeartRadio plays us. Tune in, Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere that you can listen to find a podcast, you can find Broadway Radio's offerings. I'd like to ask uh, our listeners, if you are a fan, please get over to iTunes and uh, give us a five-star rating. Five-star ratings are really important for us. Uh, Four-star or less is actually detrimental to us. So uh, if you can get over and give us a five-star rating, we would appreciate it. Uh, this contact information for Peter, for Michael, for me, and for Jan can be found in the show notes at broadwayradio.com as, 
uh, com, as well as link to Jan's articles and all the different uh, things that we've talked about today. So on behalf of uh, Jan Simpson, Michael Portantier, and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Videos this week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Kick that bucket down in the well. Well, well, well. My favorite dish. Ah, fish. Gesundheit. Thank you. You're welcome. Swing. <laughs>